Compromise? What is compromising? Compromising for what? Compromising for what reason? To compromise? For what? To compromise. What is compromise? If a man came into your life, wouldn't you want to compromise? <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> a man comes into my life and I have to compromise? You must think about that one again. Hello everyone. Hello everyone. Hey everyone. Hey everyone. Hey everyone. Hey everyone. Welcome. 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 Thank you for joining us. And thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us on the tightrope. And thanks for joining us on the tightrope on this special edition of the tightrope where we engage in a love and justice infused dialogue. I'm Trisha Rose. I'm Trisha Rose. I'm Trisha Rose. And I'm with my dear friend, brilliant thinker and freedom fighter, Cornell West. Well, first, I want to salute you, my dear sister. It's a blessing anytime we get a chance to spend time and try to be forces for good. And I'm here with the greatest intellectual on the planet, Dr. Cornell West. And he's also a dear friend. Hello, Corn. How are you? How's it going? Oh, how you doing, my dear sister? You're so kind. I would, I would say you are the wisest oh. and the most insightful intellectual of your generation. That's the truth right there. All right. Well, it's, it's, it's no, no more true than than what i already said about you so now now i topped you back so there you have it <laughs> no i'm serious i'm serious as a heart attack yeah i mean we are we are seeking to have um equal access to systems that were created without us in mind. Um, and so it doesn't really matter the, the amount of reforms we carry on if the whole system is sort of designed to not grant you access to opportunity and prosperity, access to your civil liberties, access to your full humanity, access to dignity, you will see the, the disparities because, you know, they the systems aren't designed to educate our children. The systems aren't designed to create economic investment in our communities. The systems aren't designed um, to adequately absorb us in into, into society. And you know, the, the kind of transformation that is needed um, is, is asking of people to do something that they haven't done before. And there is um, fear uh, amongst many because their way of life feels threatened when you are asking for them to, you know, expand their their thought process and to reimagine a system where everybody's way of life is protected and uplifted. When we talk about limiting, specifically in the and from the conversation uh, around transgender individuals and trans bodies, when we talk about using science or any reason to limit, let's say, for example, womanhood and trans womanhood and draw a very close distinction 
and then try to talk about reasons why trans women don't fit into, some people say trans women don't fit into the definition of being a woman. And then those reasons, unfortunately, can almost always be used against other women who aren't trans, cisgender women who aren't trans. If you talk about biology, you're talking about body type, size, height, depth of voice, hands, uh, chromosomes. There are lots of cisgender women or women who are not trans who fit into a, a, a category that isn't as black and white, let's say, or isn't as binary right. uh, as that. When we were fighting really hard and we did have one victory, and of course it was 2019, where we were going to the Supreme Court while they were hearing the arguments uh, to challenge Title VII, which is workplace discrimination protections for everyone. A lot of the reasons that there were uh, arguments that the proponents of striking down Title VII were using were things that could be used against any woman or any man. Uh, right. Examples, you know, wh why trans people, sh you know, should not be protected because, you know, religion um, should trump their their protection on the workplace. And any woman who doesn't act and look and, and pr conduct herself how women should, should right. not be, you know, uh, well, my mom fits into that category. Right. And so, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, 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 yeah, that's very common. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm the great granddaughter of, of enslaved folks and slave owners, and I'm not great, great, just great. And in that five generations, when we came up from slavery, because we were the sons and daughters of the owners, my folk came out literate. Uh, our owners prided themselves on their libraries, at least one plantation did. And so one branch of my family came out literate, and we have five generations of college. Condoleezza and I should definitely be at the top, okay? We've had five generations of college. We came mm. out with clothes. We came out owning land. So I said that I am the beneficiary of white supremacy because the whiter you are, the more valued you are. And I said, look at that. I said, I have to claim that. Now, now listen, there's no, there's no ego. I've got an ego bigger, bigger than the Pentagon building. I think I walk on, you know, I think I'm, I'm the cat's pajamas. Don't worry about it. There's no, there's no, I've known my value since I was two. Okay. No, there's no inferiority complex here. Anybody who knows me will tell you I'm as arrogant as they come. It's not, that's not the problem. But recognizing that in, in addition to the enormous talent that we have in my family, we, you know, it, it, but for racism, we'd be running the world. Okay, so, so let, let's just get that. But for sexism, we'd be running the world and the cosmos. So here, here is, I had to explain this, not in terms of whiteness, but in terms of color caste privilege. And I just had, I had an hour's worth of examples and anecdotes, which I, which I won't go into here. And nobody left the room. My goal was not to have the frightened white audience leave the room. Not only did they not leave the room, because at the end of the speech I said, ladies and gentlemen, we're in this together. Nobody in this room, nobody in this room woke up and dreamt up slavery. But together, we have to undo it. Oh, that, that, that one and only Trisha. No, I'm so sorry to be late. You're fine. You're no, fine. You're right. okay. If I'm okay to not do headphones, I prefer because then I can leave my ears yeah. on. Yes, no, they are fantastic. Oh, absolutely. We ain't going to be messing with those lovely earrings now. Exactly. Mm. That's Hi, Trisha. How are you? 
so happy to see you. Why I'm didn't so we happy. zoom on our own? This is so stupid. I don't know. It's actually <laughs> hilarious when you realize what's possible. Your hair is looking extremely hydrated and happy, which makes me happy. And do you know, I just <laughs> patterned it today as a matter wow. of fact. I am glad to hear this, but your hair really, those curls are looking juicy. Juicy over here. <laughs> juicy over here. It's a little... There's a this little too much so broken ends because we've not been out to the stylist. You know, <laughs> we're, we're trying mm. to keep COVID free. <laughs> I am such a, um, a heart and feet based person. Like it's like uh, I'm connected to sort of what the, what I'm feeling and what's happening, mm. which is why honestly right now, I feel like I had this conversation with you, Trisha, but as um, the pandemic and then with George Floyd's murder and the uprisings that were occurring, I couldn't feel my feet for a long time. Mm. I just felt like I literally, when I would get quiet in meditation or whatever, I was like, I can't feel my feet. Mm. And I realized it was because the foundation is shifting beneath us. So for me, it was, it was, it started as a personal journey and realizing that there weren't products and there weren't things, there weren't images that were allowing me to be mirrored back to myself. And, and it was hard to hold my own sense of self-love without seeing enough of it. It wasn't, you know, yes, it's possible. Of course it is, but it does help when you get those mirrors, Im those images mirrored back to you on the wallpaper of your experience, you know, what you're sort of walking by on a regular basis. Exactly. There were products that would hydrate your hair to the point that we could blow it straight and put so much heat on it, like uh, right. slick it down, oil it, like do all these different things, but not if you wanted to wear your hair naturally. And the other part is to actually be an active space where we were celebrating black beauty at our core. Um, and that to me is the paradigm shift because so much of the industry was mirroring back a version of us that you had to manipulate in order to get as right. if who you are authentically is not beautiful. My last name, Shahidi, means witness, it's to bear witness. And I mean, I, I hope, I hope that through art or whatever these other avenues are, I'm considering law school, we'll see, um, whatever these avenues are, that I'm able to do that to the best of my ability um, and to continue to open doors um, in, in every space. I mean, even mm -hmm. I think Professor West, thinking about my journey at school, you know, entertainment and education is not something that they make easy. Um, but I remember <laughs> stepping in your class and you ensured me that I belonged there. And so I'm like, mm -hmm. I, I think when I think of all of those moments that have so deeply impacted me every step of my way, and I'm sure there's only more to come, hoping that I can provide those um, for the people around me is really the end goal. And I'm, I'm constantly refining it. I think uh, some days I just want to professionally ride jet skis and other days I'm like, I want to change the world. <laughs> um, other days I'm Both like, I want to run a healthy. music studio. Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> and so I've also had the privilege, I think, both creatively and then also just in my home um, to constantly be refining my opinion on the world. Uh, my family and I are in constant conversation about absolutely everything. Um, um. And it means that I feel as though it's almost a, a, a training ground for lack of a better term because it's able to process 
feel and articulate my initial opinion, completely change it, <laughs> learn a little more and evolve, um, which was helpful. And at the same time, uh, it's hard with as much as what's happening in the world right now to figure out um, how I'm most efficient. I, I think I say mm -hmm. that to say I'm somebody where I feel like if I'm not directly doing the most good possible that I'm doing nothing and I'm trying to stop operating in those extremes um, because I, I think it's easy to trivialize everything like for example random example I feel as though people who plan red carpets also know when the world is about to burn because every major red carpet event happens when the world is properly in catastrophe and there's nothing more trivial than standing there <laughs> after getting two hours of hair and makeup and a really nice dress that somebody was nice enough to let me wear while there's so much happening in the world. It feels really right. myopic to be there. And so yeah. I think it means that the, the question is ever present to say, how efficient am I being with my platform um, mm. to actually be combating the things that I say I want to combat? I remember I was working with the administration um, really in their last year. And to, again, once people have handed over the mic to me to know that um, I was able to co-host the White House Science Fair and was able to celebrate <clears throat> International Day of the Girl as well as Nowruz, um, which is Persian mm -hmm. New Year at the White mm -hmm. House is really special. But that again goes into a, a deep investment when I think there are plenty of other people to turn to who, who mm -hmm. are incredible humans in this space. The fact that anybody had turned to, to me was um, really incredible to think about. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I think those impacts just as people who model how to move through the world is really impactful to see that as an example because I feel like it creates a space to make even my journey even easier. It's funny because uh, in terms of what I do now, I think a lot of people always try to analyze my actions in a strictly political context. You know, she's a Marxist or this or that. And I did not grow up reading any of these texts until I was much, much older. And it's just, I, oh, I was already here. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that this was a political shaped. way of being. That's right. That's I just right. thought it was a moral way of being. And it turns That's out right. that, you know, it's it's all, there's also kind of a, a, a way you can contextualize this within a political framework. But um, but when my father passed away, you know, as, as I said, he and I just shared we were like one, you know, there, I think mm. some people just have very, very special relationships in their lives. You know, some, whether it's mother, daughter or mother, son right. or father, daughter or grandparent, grandchild, um, just some, you know, a lot of people are very blessed to, to have just one relationship no matter who it is too, that is just so deep um, mm. that it almost feels like a soul tie. And mm. when you see that person, you know, you feel truth, you feel home um, and you feel growth. And that was my father to me. He was like my everything. And I know that, um, that you know, I played a very special role in his life as well. And so, um, so we shared this very special bond and it's, it's difficult because when someone like that passes away, it's not an, 
It's not an insult to any of the other people that you love very deeply in your life, um, right. but it can feel right. like an unmooring. It can feel like you don't have a home anymore and you feel just profoundly alone. Why should I feel so alone when I still have my mother and my brother and my grandmother, but I felt alone in the universe. Um, so alone that, that the next year I studied abroad and I spent four months in West Africa, living in West Africa. And, um, and my father's passing was very much um, part of that decision. Um, which kind of, I think was the first, one of the first domino falls that I think kind of set me on a very larger trajectory personally in my life. Um, because I just felt, you know, I felt so alone and sometimes the way to heal from that is to just be alone. You know, it's, mm. it can be very painful when you are alone yet are surrounded Um, and so sometimes you just need solitude. And That's so, um, I always knew that I wanted to study abroad in college because, uh, I didn't, aside from visiting my family in Puerto Rico, I never really had the opportunity to travel or anything like that growing up, see other countries. And I, you know, I had the opportunity to go to Niger and, um, it just felt like such an incredible opportunity to me because, Anyone can get on a plane and go to London or Paris if you're blessed enough. You know, it's a matter of resources. But going to visit and spend time in community in a place like Niger, it takes more than resources. It takes people. It takes community. Um, and so I, I thought it was just a, a wonderful opportunity to go. And so I went there. Um, at the time, I entered college as a pre-medical student. And... Um, mm -hmm. And I was interested in, in public health, but I was interested in healing. And more specifically, ooh, more specifically I actually wanted to be an OBGYN. Um, and so I went to Niger um, to work with midwives. And I went there and I did rotations uh, with midwives helping Nigerian women um, and Nigerian, you know, Nigerian parents give birth. Um, and it was just a profoundly spiritual and radicalizing experience. And um, just seeing how like the strength of these women and the way of life. And I remember feeling at that time that Americans were so poor. Mm. Um, yes, because yes, yes. Yeah. I, I found friendship and I would spend time, you know, the whole evening would be spent preparing tea over fire with friends and just talking and listening to music. And, um, and that level of enjoyment just does not exist in American life. You know, this is something that people do on a Friday night, maybe once a week if they aren't exhausted by work. Um, but this is a way of life in Niger that Absolutely. people every single evening 
you would spend, sorry, my, my dog is barking in the background. No, that's fine. That's fine. We're in agreement. But every single, every single evening, though, was like, that was the point. That interaction was the sun around which life revolved around. It's our fellowship and connection to one another. And in the United States, you know, the contrast here was um, work is the sun that your whole life is organized around. Everything is in the margins. But in Niger, family, community, connection, that is the sun. And everything else is organized around that. That's one of my favorite things about this 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 space with you, Cornell, and the time and the the guests we have is is really reconnecting for me and for hopefully others, reconnecting people who we we know something about, but connecting them to this this hidden tradition, this obscured, uh, un, un disrespected, frankly, tradition. And they and they're so open to lay bare for us, you know. Right, right. They, 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 they right. They it's not an imposition. They come right on in. That's right. They come yeah. right on in. Let me introduce you to some folk. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Don't tell me you can't change people. I can't change people. People can change themselves when they see what is wrong and realize what is wrong. And if we would teach empathy in the schools, and Kenneth Clark, the person who did the black and brown doll studies, said if teachers would do what Jane Elliott did, we could change what happens in this society. It's a special week. Does anybody know what it is? National Brotherhood Week. What's brotherhood? Treat everyone as though he was your brother. And is there anyone in this United States that we do not treat as our brothers? Yes. Who? The black people. Who else? Absolutely the Indians. Think you know how I would feel to be judged by the color of your skin? I don't. Do you think you do? No, I don't think you'd know how that felt unless you had been through it, would you? It might be interesting to judge people today by the color of their eyes. Would you like to try this? Yeah. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Side people in this room today are going to wear collars so that we can tell from a distance what color your eyes are. What happened at recess? Were two of you boys fighting? Russell called me names and I came in the gut. What did he call you? Brown eyes. They always call us that. Yeah, they always call us brown eyes. What's wrong with being called brown eyes? It means that we're stupid. Eyed people may take off their collars, and each of you may put your collar on a blue-eyed person. Okay, you ready? What did you people who are wearing blue collars now find out today? I know what they felt like In yesterday. I did too. How did they feel yesterday? Should the color of some other person's eyes have anything to do with no. how you treat them? No. If you don't think treating people positively or negatively on the basis of a physical characteristic over which you have no control, then you tell me why we have racism in this country. It's because you can change them. You can make people feel less than by putting them in menial jobs, paying them less than they're worth, forcing them to live in substandard housing, and then when the middle class people want to get closer to downtown, you can wipe out that neighborhood and call it regentrification, when in yeah. fact it isn't regentrification, it's racism at work.
and we know better. We're still doing it and we know better. That's true. And if we believe, if we practice the golden rule, if we practice the golden rule, which yeah. we don't, That's then true. you can preach until the cows come home. That's you're still true. preaching in the, you're still preaching something that is telling some people to submit and other people to be bigger than, better than, and wealthier than. history as a young child because history explained the world to me. It, it calmed me when what I saw didn't match the reality of what I knew to study history and see, oh, this is intentional. Oh, this was constructed. Um, and, and to be able to have the lexicon to describe the lived reality of today based on this historical facts is why I fell in love with history. And, and what I hope the 1619 Project has done is made people understand the relevancy of history and how we can't ever get past something. It's always impacting us. It's always shaping uh, the society we live in today. And to ignore that then is to mean that we don't really want to deal with why we are as we are and therefore we can't fix it. So I encourage everyone to study history and if you need a history light, uh, plug into 1619. It's about control, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's about uh, it's hard to have compassion when you are trying to control and deny people freedom. Um, and I and I think ultimately that's what this fight is about and that we do have to use the language of, you know, um, denying someone's ability to imagine their own future, right? To, to um, and that, that fundamentally starts with your ability to control your own body. And so if you cannot control your own body, you you can't make all the determinations about how you or you want your family to live. And so when I think about the um, the, the compassion side of the argument, it's, it's hard for me to to see why they would when control seems to be so much more um, in their purview. And, you know, and to me, it just fits within the, the other fights around around freedom. Um, and, and I think particularly as a black woman and as black people, you know, like, I feel like there's like a movement equation for me in this work that is like freedom is, is the, ju is justice times power, right? Justice is, um, you know, fighting the dehumanization, um, of how people see us. It's fighting the dehumanization of our trans, you know, brothers and sisters. It's, it's fighting the, um, dehumanization that allows people to, you know, to lock children in cages. Um, and it's the amount of power that we have built Planned Parenthood. When I started at, on the board, was two we had two million supporters. We now have 16 million supporters. And that has been fueled by, you know, like most other movements, largely um, black, brown, queer, um, young, um, extraordinary leaders who really are living these fully intersectional lives. And so like they understand that freedom is, is, is how we wrap all of these ideas around, um, you know, fighting against dehumanization, but putting our power and muscle behind it. And that that's where the energy of the movement is for me right now. Mm. It's that mm. the outside game is, is like the outside game is actually stronger than the inside game. And I haven't I haven't seen that in a, in a minute. But um, both of you all as uh, as friends and leaders and mentors um, has been so important to my own growth. And so I'm really honored to 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 join the tightrope with you. It's the broccoli of love. It's a love for what could be. 
you know, anger is, is as you said, it's, it's like an adrenaline high. But then you crash. It's like white sugar black of, of, of political activism and something that all three of us know and that sometimes I think younger people are just learning is we have to be in this for the long haul. This is not something that's going to, you know, this is a lifetime process serving the ages to the best of our ability. So we're not going to win every fight. We're not going to win every, every race. You just keep going. And for that, you need nourishment. And that is where love comes in. It's love for the possibility of, of democracy, love for the possibilities of justice. You know, in the Talmud, the Jewish book of wisdom, it says, you were not obligated to complete the task, but neither are you permitted to abandon it. That to me is, is nourishment, that you are here, once again, in Judaism, tikkun olam, you are here to repair the world. You are here to repair the breach, right? To the repairers of the breach, as Reverend Barber says. You are here, as Martin Luther King said, to inject a new dimension of love into the veins of human civilization. That's nourishing inspiration. And you're, you're looking beyond just even one generation. You are serving your ancestors. You are devoted to your great-grandchildren. And it just takes you to a, to a place where maybe the highs aren't necessarily all that high, but the lows won't be all that low either. You're, on a, you're in a Gulf Stream that has to do with the, with the journey of history. You're serving the idea, not just a short-term project and you know that the arc of justice that the moral universe is long but it does bend toward justice and you are just uh, any generation is just the latest line we are we're on the same train that our ancestors were on and we know where we're going and that to me is what it means to serve uh, from a more nourishing place mm. and it also I believe and I, I definitely feel this with you, Cornell, and Trisha, you and I are just meeting, but those of us who recognize in one another that's that train, it's not transactional, it's relational. We're, it's deep, it's rich. It's something that the alliance, you know, in the I Ching, it says even thieves have alliances, even thieves have allies. We need more than allies. We need deep soul friends. And that's what many of us are finding in each other. And something beautiful, I think, is happening right now in this country that way. Well, my mom was a civil rights activist and my parents were very political and they were part of the spiritual community called Subud. And they, they were like, well, why are we raising our kids in these cities? Why don't we have them in nature? Why don't we all live together? Then we, some were Jewish, some were Muslim. We could talk about comparative religion. We could talk about politics. There were musicians and artists. So we started to grow up in this very natural way, um, this communal way. And, and at this point now being a successful actress, um, I'm really grateful. I grew up at first when we lived there, we had a cabin, seven of us were living in it. It was one mm -hmm. little room a pot belly stove and a bathroom you had to go outside down 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 to the gym wow. so i mean i grew up like in a really kind of primitive way for an american to grow up um but it was also an amazing way to grow up now having said that within our commune we had 
really worldly thinkers. But outside our commune, my sister had a black boyfriend in a high school in Virginia, and people called her an end lover and were fighting with her, and there was fights, you know, which drove my mom insane. It was really kind of like the town itself was like 30 years behind. So we'd come from a city to this place, and in a lot of ways, it was very backwards all around us. Mighty, mm. but you emerged triumphant. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> That's right. You were right. You were wrong. My mom was diagnosed with breast cancer, um, and it was third stage. And she did a lot of research. She was a brilliant woman. You would have loved her. Great poet. Yes, yes. yes. Amazing woman. Um, and so she ended up doing alternative methods. But watching my mom, because she said, "Look, there's already a shadow on my lung. I'm really early fourth stage." But talk about bravery. I mean, watching wow. someone battle that in front of you. She was such a badass when we were little kids. That, uh, there's a story that. When a bus, they were waiting for the bus, her and my sister. And when the bus came, they wouldn't stop to let this handicapped person on. Um, so my mom just laid down in front of the wheels of the bus Ooh. until they Ooh. stopped and let them on the bus. So wow. she was really a powerful Ooh, woman. She, she wow. was special. Wow, that's, that's, that's incredible. Ooh, that's mm. Mm. Yeah. No, we understand where you come from. Oh like, yeah, yeah. Know, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a little tiny bit of her power. You know? Wow, wow. Yeah. But you know, it's you know, it's not only the courage to to fail, but it's also not to internalize that rejection as having anything to do with you. Exactly. Right? Right. So, so right. say more. Because I mean, in acting, it's all about rejection. You're you're at the will of all this. The, all these parties sometimes you're in a room with 30 producers and a network and all these people and it can just destroy you because um, you're also an artist but it's not true I mean luckily because my dad was an actor he said sweetie all you do is you do your research beforehand you prepare yourself you go in the room you have fun you do the best job you can you explore and then you leave it there and it's out of your hands and it it's really not your business what they think of you. <laughs> the payoff you get when you get a failure. I mean, I'm going to tell you, I'd go on an audition. I made a choice. It was such a boring part, okay? It was like a nothing part of the secretary. Like, you know, Mr. Weaver, you have a call on line three. It was like nothing. So I decided just to play her like a total ditz. Like, during the audition, I was like dropping papers and like forgetting things, kind of spacing out. And anyway, I left. My agent got a call from the casting director. What the hell was wrong with her? She was horrible. You know, that was the worst, <laughs> the worst audition I ever had. I said, call them back and tell them that was my acting choice. That's not who I am. But as a woman, you assume that's who I am. This is a right. boring ass part. And this was my choice I decided to make to make it more interesting for me. You don't have to like it, it's fine. But I was really proud of myself for taking a chance and making a choice. And once I got that, you know, negative response, instead of shutting down, when I got my next audition, I was like, 
the the prize that I get is totally committing myself again. Okay, there years ago, sometimes in acting I'll do different things. Like I have these medicine cards which are different Native American animals and I might pull some on a project. And I was doing this we were building toilets in Haiti, compost toilets. Um and I pulled the snake card and snake medicine is people who can ingest poison from a snake and they ingest it and they keep getting bit and they get stronger and stronger and they build up an immunity to poison which makes them super strong so that's kind of how i looked at failure actually every failure that came to me i took it and i put it in me and i transformed it into medicine and i said that's great i will take that failure and instead of it being my kryptonite it's going to nourish me mm-hmm. and it's going to nourish my strength to push through okay well this was a fantastic episode today going to keep the struggle alive thank you so much thank everybody for joining us thank you all very much for joining us on the tie rope we want to just thank all of you for joining us on the tie rope it's so good to be with you today cornell no same here thank indeed, you so indeed. much well, salute you like always my dear sister trisha professor rose herself for indeed. sharing so much today cornell it's always a joy thank you it's just always a joy to be in dialogue with you So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, school's in session, brother. School's in school's session. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we we not and we're not keeping our six feet of distance. We going in. We going we in. Going in. We hope you will subscribe. That you'll share with your friends. Let them know what we're up to. Uh, join us on social media, and don't forget to come back the next time on the tightrope.